in the September 20th, 2004 issue of McLean's Magazine, Leanne George recounts this tragic story. One November day in 2002, Jim Sulkers, a 53-year-old retired municipal worker from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, climbed into bed, pulled the covers up, and died. Nearly two years later, on August 25, 2004, police, who had been called by concerned relatives, entered Sulker's apartment and found his body in a mummified state. Everything else in his tidy one-bedroom apartment was intact, although the food in his fridge was spoiled and his wall calendar was two years out of date. Mr. Sulker's death went undiscovered for several reasons. He was reclusive, estranged from family members, and had a medical condition that prevented his body from decomposing and emitting odors. In addition, automatic banking deposited his disability pension and withdrew utilities and other expenses as they came due. Terrence Morin who, along with Neil Postman, co-founded the Media Ecology Program at New York University, said, for many practical purposes, this man was virtually alive throughout that time. This man's life was extended for two years by the technology he used. The same uh, could be said about the Church of Sardis. They seem virtually alive although they were dead. Uh, would you please uh, unsheath your swords and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And as you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, let me give you a little background on the church of Sardis. It was 50 miles east of Smyrna and southeast of uh, Thyatira by about 30 miles. Uh, the word Sardis is plural, uh, which refers to a double city. Uh, one was elevated and considered impregnable. Uh, Sardis was wealthy, uh, a wealthy city located on a commercial trade bank running east and west through Lydia, uh, which was the capital there. Uh, here's what I want you to focus upon. Let me toss this question to you. What three things does Jesus desire in a church to give his triple A approval. I can remember as a child traveling with my parents and before we would go anywhere, they would look for a triple A rating. I did a uh, internet search and found that 270,000 hotels have been triple A approved. So what three things does Jesus desire in a church to give it his triple A approval? Let me read to you Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will, will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. 
You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you bow your heads as I lead us in prayer? Father, what a privilege again to step into your presence to communicate the eternal word of God. We thank you for your son and his assessment of these seven churches and the wisdom that we can glean today because truly what is said to one church applies to all. Minister to us, may the spirit of truth guide us into the truth before us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One more important background detail, and this is a quote from uh, Thomas. Pagan religions throughout the area attributed healing powers to their deities. But in Sardis, special emphasis focused on the power to restore life to the dead. This special power was connected with the hot springs about two miles from the city, These springs were viewed as visible manifestations of the power of the God of the underworld, which was prominent in the local religious legend. Jesus, the one who had conquered death, gives a brief description of himself here in Revelation chapter 3. It says, He who has the seven spirits of God. For those who have been with us from the onset of our study, back in Revelation 1, 4, and 5, we had a greeting from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is the seven spirits. The seven spirits clearly being an idea of the Holy Spirit's perfection, or completion showing that he is God. Uh, Look over with me, please, to Revelation chapter 4, coming down to verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So here we have seven lamps of fire identified with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, let's go back to the Old Testament for just a moment uh, to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, just focusing on a concept of the seven spirits of God being the Holy Spirit, showing the breath of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Zechariah, chapter 4, Zechariah was ministering. The people had returned after being in captivity for 70 years. Remember, the southern kingdom was in captivity, and it was now time for them to go home, renovate the build, renovate the uh, temple there, and work with the people's lives as well. So in Zechariah chapter 4, Uh, The angel is talking with Zechariah the prophet, and he said to me, what do you see? So I said, 
I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, supernaturally hovering there. And on the stand, catch the expression, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. We see clearly, once again, in our context, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit who will accomplish the work of God. Verse 6 says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You've got to appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you're coming back to Revelation with me, let's spring forward to Revelation chapter 5 in verse 6. Revelation 5 in verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Here, the Holy Spirit is described as having seven eyes, the idea of perfect omniscience. The Holy Spirit, like the Father, like the Son, knows everything. So no wonder when it was time for Jesus to leave his disciples and ascend to the right-handed of Father that he expresses to them in John 15 in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will testify of me. We've been looking at the doctrine of a procession. I don't know if you recognize that is what it's called, but it's the idea that the Father sent the Son to earth for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But then the Son came and ministered, and when the Son departs, he dispatches the Spirit of God. The omniscient, Spirit of God who knows all things called the Spirit of truth. So think about this for a moment. It is Jesus Christ that within the Trinity is the one who is holding on to the seven spirits of God or the Holy Spirit. Now let's continue here in Revelation chapter 3. He's also holding on to the seven stars. That might sound familiar to you because back in chapter 1 in verse 16 and again in verse 20 of that same chapter, Jesus is the one who is holding the messengers to the churches. And now Jesus says that familiar statement to the church of Sardis, I know your works. Not only is the Holy Spirit all-knowing, so is Jesus, who can testify, I know your works. And he continues, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Sardis' reputation was that of life, but the reality was, according to Jesus' assessment, death. The word alive here is from zao, and it speaks of an inner life. There's another Greek term, bios. We get biology from it, which speaks of external life. This church 
had a reputation of being spiritually alive. And what does Jesus say to them? But you are dead. The verb here, are, is in the present tense, showing that he is making a pronouncement upon the people that they are continually spiritually dead. So here is our first A of the triple A assessment by Jesus. Point number one, Jesus desires you to be spiritually alive. Yes, he does. Jesus desires you to be spiritually alive. He wants the church to be vibrant. He is desirous that the church has an inner life manifested to the world around where that church is planted. Now, with this introduction and statement of the first point, let me go on to our second point, and this uh, comes from verses 2 and 3. Jesus desires you to be spiritually alert. So not only does he want us to be spiritually alive, Jesus desires you to be spiritually alive. Alert. In verse 2, we have the command. Translated here, be watchful. We could actually translate this literally, become watchful. Back in the 5th century BC was a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus. Uh, he gives us the account of Cyrus. Cyrus was the Persian king who was desirous to overthrow the region, the church uh, area that Jesus is addressing. And let me read to you his account. On the 14th day of the siege, Cyrus made proclamation that he would give a reward to the man who should first mount the wall. Remember, Sardis is an elevated city. There are two, and the one seemed impregnable. In other words, you could not penetrate it. Let me continue. Hyroides, however, had observed a Lydian soldier descend the rock to retrieve a helmet, which had rolled down from the top, and having seen the man pick it up and carry it back, thought over what he had witnessed and formed his plan. He climbed the rock himself, and other Persians followed him, Iranians if you will, in his track until a large number had mounted to the top. Thus, Sardis was taken. See, Sardis should have known even based upon its own history to be spiritually alert, to be watchful. And so Jesus tells the spiritually dead church be watchful, become watchful is what they need to do. And he continues here in verse 2, and strengthen the things which remain. They need to change their current situation and then give strength to the things that they are doing right. Because he says to them that are ready to die. The last spark of life is about gone. And he gives this reason why it's gone. For I have not found your works perfect before God. A.T. Robertson, the famous Greek scholar of old, gives us this quote, their works have not measured up to God's standards. So we see that their works are not perfect before God. 
Now down in verse 3, he says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. They need to go back and think about their former teaching and where they departed from the right track. Consider Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's exactly what this church needed to do, to go back to its former teachings and put them into practice. Our Lord is very direct. He simply then says, hold fast and repent. Hold fast to the foundation that you have, the right foundation, but then repent from your spiritual lethargy, your spiritual laziness. They were not acting as if they were an alert church. Uh, turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul founded this model church. He had probably spent maybe just a few months in Thessalonica, founded the church, and then got put out. There were angry Jews, the Jewish hierarchy that followed Paul wherever he went, drove him out of the city of Thessalonica. So Paul writes this letter, and I want you to pick it up with me in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Clearly, as Paul writes to the saints, he says, we're light, we're not darkness. Therefore, verse 6, let us not sleep. That word sleep is quite intriguing, Cthuzo. It carries the idea of being slothful. It's being spiritually indifferent. The concept here, Paul says, the exhortation to the saints is don't become spiritually lazy. Make sure you are spiritually alert. So therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. See the verb watch? Gregoreo, this is the same verb that keeps appearing over in Revelation chapter 3. We get our English name Gregory from it. It means to be watchful. But he says, I don't want you saints to be spiritually indifferent. I don't want you to be spiritually lazy. I want you to be alert. You need to be watchful. And in verse 7, see, for those who sleep, speaking here of the unsaved, most likely, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, see the saints, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And by the way, just on a side, you can always tell a mature church because they have three characteristics. And we saw the same three characteristics in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. You have faith, hope, and love. And here, those three terms are repeated again. So when you have a church that expresses faith, they're taking God at his word and acting on it, they live in hope, anticipating the imminent return of Christ, and then have love. And you recall in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, 
and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. You have a mature church. Paul is exhorting these saints not to become spiritually indifferent because we see in Revelation chapter 3 the danger of becoming spiritually lazy. So return with me please. Revelation chapter 3. And Jesus gives a strict warning here. Therefore, this is in verse 3, if you will not watch, see the term again? If you will not be vigilant, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Uh, The coming here doesn't seem to be eschatological, if you will, a future coming. It seems to be that he's going to come in judgment, much like to the church of Ephesus back in chapter 2 in verse 5. And yet, this city, this church is not watchful. There's a history that should have prepared these people to be spiritually alert, to be vigilant. And now I want to draw your attention for the second time the word watch is used. We saw it back in verse 2 as a command. Now we see it in verse 3 once again. And you know what's so sad is that when you look at this city's history, back in 214 B.C., this city was again conquered by Antiochus the Great. So not only once, but twice you have this city being conquered because they were not watchful. Although they were perched up on a hill and they seemed secure, they did not watch. And I think that plays right into what is happening here with the church of Sardis. Came upon this story since 9-11 Our nation has been on high alert. Although for several years nothing as catastrophic has happened in this country since that day, terrorists have struck elsewhere. On March 11, 2004, terrorists exploded 10 bombs in Madrid, Spain, killing almost 200, wounding another 1,800. Two months later, there was a scare in Philadelphia. It was May 5th. And a conductor for Pennsylvania's Transit Authority discovered something frightening on the tracks near Philly's massive 30th Street station. It was an electronic transmitter planted alongside the tracks in a commuter rail yard. Agents from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI soon swarmed the scene. Investigators discovered that the mysterious gadget was in fact a motion detector designed to send a signal to a nearby receiver. Tension mounted. Finally, a train mechanic stepped forward and admitted installing the transmitter. Was he a terrorist or a disgruntled employee looking for revenge? No. The mechanic worked a graveyard shift and had installed the motion detector to sound an alarm in his work area whenever his supervisor was approaching. That way he could safely take a nap. If the alarm went off, he could get up and look busy when the boss showed up. You get the idea of being indifferent? Uh, Let me give you another biblical passage for this. This time, over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. We saw 
the spiritual indifference that can take place with the saints, and Paul warned the Thessalonian believers, we'll now take a look at this with Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 5, coming down to verse 8. Ephesians 5, 8. Paul says, for you were, that's continuous action in past time. You were once darkness because before they came to know Christ, they habitually remained in darkness. But now, see right now, you are light in the Lord. And here's the command, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out, the concept here is proving from Dokimadzo to give someone a test with the thought that they'll pass the test. Proving what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things, that's the secret sins of the verse before, that are exposed or made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Now verse 14, to quote from the Old Testament, therefore he says, awake. You might want to underline the word awake. It's a present imperative. Wake up and stay awake. Awake you who sleep. Does that term sound familiar to you? We saw it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 about being spiritually lazy and different. So Paul says, awake you who sleep. He's writing to believers here. Arise, that's another present imperative. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. We need to stay spiritually alive we need to be spiritually alert we stay this way by having daily devotions keeping on our knees attending prayer meeting going to church each and every sunday when bible study is offered we need to be there we need to be individuals who are continually fanning the flame of our own spirituality by feeding our souls with the word of God, by praying, by meeting and fellowshipping with the saints. It is so very important that we stay in the light so that we don't become spiritually indifferent and buy into the culture of this world. So number one, Jesus desires you to be spiritually alive. That's his passion for you. Number two, Jesus desires you to be spiritually alert. We saw two separate churches, Thessalonica and Ephesus, where there was the charge, don't become spiritually indifferent. And now, our third and final point, our final A, if you will. We had a live, we had alert, and now we have a like. Jesus desires you to be spiritually alert alike that's verses four through six jesus continues now in verse four you have a few names in sardis who have not defiled their garments uh, the term defiled occurs three times in the new testament it means to smear be foul or pollute it is used figuratively of a soiled 
life. So they had some of the saints in Sardis who had not defiled themselves. And Jesus goes on to say, and they shall walk with me in white and the reason for they are worthy. The idea of here in white is speaking of holiness and purity. And by the way, these are the garments that give a description of Jesus at the transfiguration when he showed himself in a white garment that no launderer could make that white. <laughs> by the way, when the church of Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, following Christ, the one who will be on the white horse, two-edged sword in his mouth, this is how we are described as all in white garments. A familiar statement, Revelation 3, 5, he who overcomes, right? Who's the overcomer? From 1 John 5, 4 and 5, it's the believer. Let me just review that with you. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes? That Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son belonging to the category of God. So the overcomer will be in white garments. And in a curious statement. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Various interpretations on what it means to have the name blotted out from the book of life. Um, let me just give you three. The first one is to have your name removed is to lose one's salvation. But that doesn't fit the biblical narrative. Even John's writings we see in John chapter 6 and verse 37 that the one who comes to Christ, he will in no wise, it's an ume construction, strong way to say no way, be cast out. And then in John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So that doesn't fit with the biblical teaching. Uh, the second interpretation is that there's a difference from the book of life in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. That the Old Testament erasure means loss of physical life, and the erasure in the New Testament means loss of spiritual life. But doesn't that seem whimsical, arbitrary, that you'd have this lack of consistency in both testaments. And now the third view is that all people were originally written in the book of life. I want you to think about this. And if that is the case, it's more testimony that Jesus died for all people. And it's when individuals reject Christ and don't come to Christ that eventually they're blotted out of the book of life. Of life. And let me show you some reasons why. Turn with me to Psalm 69, please. Way back to the middle of the Bible, Psalm 69, and come down to verse 28. And I want you to see that even the wicked were originally written in the book of life. Psalm 69, verse 28. This is a psalm of David. He says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Speaking of the wicked there and not be written with the righteous. 
So clearly they need to be blotted out, which gives us the idea that at one time they were written in. And the wicked, by the way, can be blotted out. Now, where do we learn that? Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, the incident with the golden calf. So if you go to chapter 32, this is an easy one to find. 32, 32. Exodus 32, 32. Moses intercedes for the people because God says, I'm going to strike them all dead for their idolatry. Moses intercedes, yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, observe these words in verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. What's the implication? That even the wicked were originally in the book. And that's very important for us to see. I think when the clear teaching of Scripture makes sense that we should seek no other sense. For instance, in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation, see, the sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but also the whole world. The concept there, very clear. Jesus died for all people, not just for the saints. Verse 2 points out that he died for all people. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 says that Christ even bought the false teachers, those that deny Jesus Christ, Jesus died for them too. You see the idea from the, the clarity of Scripture is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him. And there's a danger with redefining biblical terms to fit your own scheme and your own worldview that is thrust upon the Scriptures. So many passages showing that Jesus' death was for all people. But then people will start to throw other scripture back at you. And I want to show you two of those scriptures and give you an explanation. But again, remember this. We look at the primary passages. You have to look and see the clear teachings whereby it is evident, it is proved that Jesus died for all people. I only gave you a few references, and there are many of them. But now turn with me to Revelation chapter 13 in verse 8. Revelation 13, because you have those who hold to limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect. And I just want to point out to you, when you look at the attributes of God, and in 1 John 4, 8, it says, God is love. So do we start to divide up his person and say, well, no, the son only died for a certain percentage of mankind. Down in chapter 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, speaking here of the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So here, the point is, is speaking about those unbelievers whose names have not been written in the book. So some people will say, well, you see right there, evidence. Christ didn't die for all people. And the second reference they would use, and if you turn there with me too, chapter 17 
in verse 8. Chapter 17 in verse 8 about the future destruction of Babylon. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Again, emphasis on unbelievers not being in the book of life. I'd like to read you a quote from uh, Robert Thomas. Uh, I respect Robert Thomas highly, quite a scholar, recently had gone to be with the Lord. This is what he writes. The problem may be resolved, you see, because the word written is a perfect tense verb, generally showing completed action in the past with the results continuing. And in both passages, 13.8 and 17.8, the word written is given in that form. So Thomas says the problem may be resolved by distinguishing the two possible emphases of the perfect tense of gagropti, that of a completed process and that of continuing results following the completed process process it is not the completed process of writing before the foundation of the world that is being negated by not he goes on to say it is rather the continuing results whose names do not remain written in the book of life from the foundation of the world they were there at one time but they did not stay there i like to point out that God is a timeless being. And when you look at even our salvation process, you have to go back to eternity past. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 4 says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So how does it work? All names are written in the book of life originally. Why? Because Christ died for all people. And then even in eternity past, you have the names blotted out of those who would not believe. Back with me, please, to Revelation. Let's start to wrap this up. So the individuals who are overcomers will be clothed in white garments. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's just a confirmation of salvation. Listen to Matthew 10 and verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And what is given to one church, as I keep stating, applies to all churches because verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is entitled, uh, for baseball fans, you might note the name, Barry Bonds and the Asterisk. A cloud of doubt hangs over home run king Barry Bonds. On August 7th, 2007, Bonds hit number 756, the home run that broke Hank Aaron's record. Most of the talk about the new record, though, is whether it really should count. 
because Bonds is alleged to have used steroids. Sports buffs say if his name goes into record book, it should be accompanied by an asterisk. The asterisk, of course, means that the record is a sort of record, a footnoted record. The asterisk means the record is tainted. The asterisk idea didn't go away. Mark Echo, the man who bought the ball that Bonds hit to set the record, asked baseball fans in an internet poll what he should do with it. The fans voted for him to brand the baseball with an asterisk and donate it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. In the summer of 2008, that's what Echo did. Having an asterisk by your name is actually something we should be able to identify with. Scripture talks about the book of life in which the names of each believer is recorded with all the sins we have committed in this life. You would expect that each of us would have an asterisk by our name in this all-important book. Tainted? Don't really belong, right? That's what the asterisk would stand for. But so great is our justification in Christ, so perfect is his work on the cross. So just is God in justifying you that in the book of life there will be no asterisk by your name because of Christ's atoning work on the cross for you. You truly belong in the kingdom of God. I love that. So the question that we started with, what three things is it that Jesus desires in his church to have that triple A approval? And we have seen that Jesus desires you to be spiritually alive. God sent his son in order to die for your sin. Christ became our substitute. We deserve death and eternal separation from God. And what did God do? He sent us his son to take the penalty of our sin on the cross So life really begins, eternal life, the moment we put our faith in that finished work of Christ. We turn from our sin, the sin of unbelief in particular about who Jesus is, and we believe on Jesus Christ, our substitute, whose death, burial, and resurrection were all done for you and me to be justified. That's how you come to life, but then even when you have spiritual life, We have to make sure that we are individuals who are pursuing God. Remember Hebrews 11.6? Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Be spiritually alive, child of God, by pursuing him on a daily basis. As you draw close to God through the Bible and Bible study and being in church to hear the word of God preached. As you draw near to God by being on your knees and fellowshipping with the saints, that'll help you to stay spiritually alive. But then we see that Jesus desires you to be spiritually alert. There are a lot of distractions in this world in which we live. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all got hurled at Jesus Christ but he remained true to his God-given mission. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and yet he was 
found, tried, and true. (laughs) We need to be spiritually alert. Understanding that we have an adversary. It's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have this world system, as I've mentioned, with the lust of the flesh, lusty eyes, pride of life before us regularly. So we need to maintain our spiritual disciplines so that we can be spiritually alert. And then to be spiritually alike. Christ desires all his church to be spiritual. To be individuals who have a passion for God. Who walk in lockstep together. Who are individuals that desire first and foremost to love God with all their hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And that we all move forward together to be spiritually alike. Paul labored, even with the Galatian church, that Christ might be formed in them. He would be the one who would say to the Thessalonians about being imitators because they imitated Paul and Silas. And Paul would also say to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to be spiritually alike. My prayer is that you would receive Jesus' triple A approval of being spiritually alive, spiritually alert, and spiritually alike. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Your son has done so much for us and we need to show our appreciation. We need to be sold out fully to you because you have given us your best through the son. Father, help us to stay close to you to receive your triple A approval, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.